The CFB Winning Edge 2020 FBS Review Podcast Series is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Support from our patrons help us fund updates, improvements, and special projects. It also keeps our weekly shows ad-free. As part of our review series, our patrons will also receive visuals we refer to during the show, with additional stats, rankings, notes, and more. Visit patreon.com slash cfbwinningedge to sign up. And new in 2021, annual members receive 18% off, two months free on a 12-month subscription. Thank you to all of our patrons for your generous support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody. It's CFB Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman. Follow me on the Twitter, at Bogman Sports. I'm joined, as always, by the owner and proprietor of CFB Winning Edge, Nicholas Ian Allen. Follow him on the Twitter, at CFB Winning Edge, and Xavier Trish, at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E. And today, we're going to be talking about the bottom feeders, the bottom 10 teams, according to CFB Winning Edge, going into the 2021 season. Look, the good news is here. There is nowhere to go but up for these schools. You, you know, you can barely, maybe 121 can move down to 130, I guess. <laughs> there is room to go down for some of these squads, but there ain't much. So uh, a lot of room to grow for these. Most of these teams are uh, getting at least new coaching staff hires, if not new head coaches. Uh, not a lot of winning going on with three, these programs, Nick. But uh, tell us how how this um, series is going to work before we dive in. And of course, before we go in, I know the news show was last week, but we got to talk <laughs> about Tennessee because that happened. So, yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And we'll try to we'll try to keep these shows as evergreen as possible because hopefully they'll be uh, informative if somebody stumbles across them in the you know the next few weeks or or months as they're doing off season research but basically I thought it would be a good idea uh one you guys were were kind enough to uh uh be willing to do a second show because we had this idea for a review series where we'd go through starting like you mentioned at, at uh, 1 30 and, and working our way up we're starting 10 at a time uh based off of our team strength power ratings at the end of last season. So these are, you know, if, if there were another game next week, uh, the way we're, we're doing these rankings is, you know, who would be favored against who on a neutral field. And we've got ratings that, uh, you know, correspond with, with these rankings and those are available to our patrons in our uh, 2020 FBS team profiles, which we still update on a daily basis because, you know, dozens of guys are hopping in the transfer portal each day and, and you know, coaching moves are happening and, and all of that. So, you know, all of this is, is in reference to that information, but just to sort of tie a bow on 2020 and then do a very, very early look ahead to 2021, I uh, thought it would be a good opportunity to spend, you know, five, eight, 10 minutes per team and just kind of, you know, hit the highlights. What were the strengths? What were the weaknesses? What are the opportunities to grow? Did a team particularly, you know, underperform or overperform last year? So we will get into all that. And, and you know, eventually as we get into uh, the swing of things, you know, I'm sure we'll find kind of a, a system to where uh, these previews kind of, you know, 
start to, to fall in line, but we are going to be kind of making it up as we go along. So this show might not be exactly the same format as we have in, you know, five or six weeks, but uh, hopefully we've set it up in, in such a way that it will be relatively evergreen for uh, users throughout the spring and, and into early season, uh, early off season prep uh, later this uh, later this summer. So uh, one thing, if, if this is your first time with us, uh, again, those power ratings are uh, who would be favored over who on a neutral field. Those are uh, developed by us through a wide variety of metrics. We've got individual player ratings for every player on the FBS roster. That takes into account their talent rating coming out of high school or junior college. We adjust for experience and then add uh, what I call production points. People can, uh, you know, players can get uh, updates and, and improved ratings based on statistical performances. If a, a quarterback, you know, throws for 300 yards in a game or, or averages uh, over 10 yards per pass attempt. That's worth uh, one production point, for example. You know, guys can get it for rushing yards. Defensive players can get it for, you know, multiple sacks, things like that. I've also started incorporating things like uh, PFF grades and, and uh, some certain uh, things that, that PFF has put out there as well as uh, some other, uh, you know, analytical systems and, and uh, you know, things that, that come about. I've, I've tried to find different ways to be able to get a player, you know, uh, increase their rating like you would see in the old NCAA video game or Madden or FIFA, something like that. Um, you know, if a guy was underrated coming out of high school, there's so many, you know, examples of guys who go on to become great players. We want to have a, an avenue for players to be able to, to up that rating. We've also got coach ratings that work a, a very similar way. We also have, we'll refer to often a team performance rating. You can think of that as a team's grade at the end of the season or, or as the season is going on. Uh, and all of these work on the same scale. Think of it as a, basically a, a 100 being a the maximum rating and 70 being pretty much as low as it goes. We will on occasion have uh, some players or, or some uh, ratings dip into the 60s for a variety of reasons. But for the most part, you're thinking of it kind of like you would a, a normal grading scale. Something in the 90s is an A. Something in the 80s is, you know, a B, uh, just, you know, 75 or, or more is, uh, you know, a little less than average, that, that sort of thing. So think of it that way as we're talking about player ratings, as we're talking about team performance, coach ratings. For the most part, though, during this show, we'll refer to rankings. If we're not referring to a specific stat, it'll mostly be this team finished, uh, you know, 87th in uh, EPA per play on offense. Or, you know, this uh, team has the 130th ranked quarterback unit uh, at the end of this year. So we'll get used to all of those things if, if they're new to you. And if you've got any questions, reach out to us anytime. Uh, you can find me on email excuse me, find me on Twitter at, at CFB Winning Edge. And then, of course, email CFBWinningEdge at gmail.com. Happy to go through questions with listeners or, or patrons or, uh, you know, anybody out there that, that would like to learn more about what we're doing. So uh, just some some basic things on that. And we'll Can I get play you real quick? So, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I want you to grade Xavier's podcast performance so far uh, on a, uh, you know, out of 100, of course. And, and what kind of production points would he, he be getting so far? So that, that I'm glad you brought this up because 95% uh, or more of all the numbers we will refer to have zero 
opinion as part of it at all. So (laughs) I would have to go back and look at, we've got 83 episodes that we've done. Xavier's been here for, I believe, each and every one of them. So, you know, he would get certainly an experience boost based on that. Of course. Showing up and and showing up is is definitely part of it. You know, he's making great points on a weekly basis. I would say he averages at least, you know, a production point uh, maybe every two shows. And and I would think that's a pretty good rate. Uh, So I'm I'm, I'm thinking Xavier is is, – getting close to that maximum rating. If, if he's not right. quite there yet, he's he's in the 90s, you know, mid-90s, looking like a uh, an all-conference type guy and, and uh, has his eyes on all-American status and a, a max 100 rating. And we're talking about production points here. Xavier, you have other podcasts. It's not just this one. What are your other podcasts that you do? Yeah, so I also have The Traveling Violation, which is a primarily NBA podcast, but we also tailor it to young journalists just getting started in the industry. We do in uh, we do interviews with sports information directors from different universities, as well as uh, journalists who have been a part of the industry for a while, just to give some intel and some details into the life of a journalist post-school. Um, and I also have Another podcast, which should be coming out here soon, called No Flash Photography. This is probably the first time I've ever made a spot about it. It is going to be uh, allowing an opportunity for multiple uh, photographers and videographers just to tell their story and give uh, intel and detail, once again, to the younger group of people coming up. As you know, Scott, and as you know, Nick, social media is at an all-time high. And, you know, now photographers and videographers is a full-time job. And so just kind of giving kids an idea of what that's going to be like uh, for people who know it and have been a part of it for a while. See, look at that. All kinds of production points. So, uh, I mean, I don't know if I'm good, but I have production points through the roof. (laughs) So I have many, many podcasts, all my stuff over at in this league. I do, you know, I'm on sports grid, brawl network, all, all kinds of places, but uh, this is definitely one of my favorites. And uh, before we dive into these bottom feeder teams, we got to talk about Tennessee and the hiring of Josh Heupel, uh, which was surprising to everybody. I mean, you, him leaving UCF is surprising because they have such a good yeah. thing going. The offense is flourishing. and But Tennessee is a big opportunity, Nick. So I can't really, I, I can't figure out how to feel about this. Is this a good thing for Josh Heupel or did he step on a bee's nest here? My first instinct is that it's it's good for Josh Heupel. It's uh, uh, on the one hand, it, it makes sense because the new athletic director at Tennessee, uh, Danny White, was you know at UCF hired Josh Heupel. Um, there had been some buzz around a lot of other candidates, of course, and we talked a little bit on our show yesterday, uh, you know, about some of the the names we had heard recently and right after. Basically, we you know wrapped up the show as often is the case. Uh, it really started to hit with reports and, and all signs pointing toward Heupel. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned that UCF had a good thing going, and, and I, I certainly agree. I mean, UCF is arguably the most talented uh, G5 program, uh, you know, coming into the 2020 season for sure. I was sky high personally on UCF. Our numbers loved UCF in the preseason, thought that they were, you know, the potential to be a top 15 team. And really, they underperformed. They finished six and four, lost some games they shouldn't have lost, you know, some close losses. But there was a, uh, a, a perhaps small but vocal portion of the UCF fan base that was really kind of, you know, felt like Josh Heupel was wearing out his welcome. And, and the offense still was performing at a high level. 
The defense took a big step back this year. They had over a dozen guys opt out in the you know, preseason. They also had some injury issues, of course. So there were you know things along the way that that uh, can explain away some aspects of why they underperformed. But part of it, you know, Josh Heupel's record got worse each year. UCF's you know overall. Uh, team performance rating has not improved uh, under Hypo. I mean, you know, it, it, we can say today, I think, that UCF's program is probably in a little bit worse spot uh, than it was when Hypo took over. I mean, you know, he took over an undefeated team and a team in a, a New Year's Six, uh, you know, making a run at, at the New Year's Six talking about national championships. So it's, it's, understandable there's like you're saying a lot of the the you know next 10 teams we're going to talk about for most of them there's no way to go but up at UCF there really was nowhere to go but down and you know they've slipped a little bit so was that hypo was that just sort of the natural progression of things uh you know you see some things players you know tweeting and, and things like that reactions and usually it's uh you know kind of cryptic stuff but you can you can piece together a, a little bit of uh, how guys are feeling, and and some of them seem to be thinking, hey, you know, maybe we're we're uh, going to be in a better situation with with Heupel gone, and so I think part of it it makes sense on Tennessee's uh, standpoint because from Tennessee's standpoint because uh, you know White and Heupel have a relationship, have a, a working relationship. Uh, Tennessee is probably you know talk about a team that's worse off today than they were a couple of years ago. They're worse off today than they were you know, seven or 10 days ago, for sure, based on transfer issues, based on the more we're learning about recruiting violations and things like that, there could be some potentially pretty big penalties coming down the way. That might have been why some of those bigger names, uh, you know, more uh, power five connected uh, names that we heard early on in the the process didn't end up maybe wanting this job. But, uh, you know, Hypo wasn't Scared by that, saw an opportunity to, to go on to a Power 5 program, uh, going to be able to recruit at a little bit higher level. And, you know, it, it, with the relationship with the athletic director, it, it makes sense. But it, it's kind of a, you know, I, I'm definitely in wait and see mode. I usually am on, on these types of moves. But I, I'm a little bit concerned that Hypo, you know, if, if UCF hasn't regressed they certainly haven't shown any growth, and and it was difficult based on you know how good they were when he took over. But uh, you know there were there were some concerning si- signals that that I've seen, uh, especially this year. You know four losses and uh, definitely took a, a big step back and were a major disappointment based on our numbers in the preseason and, and my own personal uh, opinion of what I thought UCF could be this year. Would by the way, would this change your answer on that poll with Hendon Hooker? Maybe, maybe, mm, but, yeah. but, you know, you think, mm. so uh, Mackenzie Milton, uh, and again, this, you know, if, if this is your first time listening to the show, in, in our previous episode, we talked about uh, transfer quarterback destinations and good fits and, and things like that. And we had a Twitter poll where Hendon Hooker, uh, our, our followers, uh, voted that he was the best fit in a new, you know, Power 5 uh, QB spot. And... I don't know because, you know, Dylan Gabriel is just kind of a a guy that, you know, slings it around uh, nonstop basically and and has had a lot of success doing that. 
Mackenzie Milton, who Heupel also coached in his first year, was a little bit more of that mobile, uh, able to to really you know do damage on the ground and and hit you know Hooker is more in that mold than the Gabriel mold, I think. And and he can probably throw it a little bit better, a little bit more than we saw at Virginia Tech. And maybe he'll grow into, uh, you know, being able to, to uh, play that type of role if that's the, the sort of offense that you see or that uh, Tennessee is going to run. But, you know, it's uh, it didn't really move me that much. I was surprised Tucker was our, our, you know, who everybody thought would be the best one. And maybe, you know, knowing now that it's it's Hypel, knowing he's got a quarterback background, he's had some highly successful quarterbacks, that gives me a little bit of optimism, uh, a little bit more than I had, but not, you know, it hasn't completely changed my mind. So, Xavier, th- this hire at Tennessee is a surprising one. And, and I got to think that uh, at, at this point, Scott Frost may be – keeping an eye oh, on that UCF yeah. job right now. You know what I mean? So uh, who's going to come in? Are they going to promote from within? What are they going to do as far as their head coach goes? So Frost might be staring like, eh, maybe maybe that's something I want to uh, go back to at some point. But let's stick with Tennessee here. Josh Heupel to Tennessee. What do you think? Yeah, I like it. And I like the hire for, for, for another reason. We've talked really at depth about the fact that they're struggling on the recruiting trail right now. And they're really struggling with keeping a lot of highly rated guys. Well, Hypo was one of those coaches who succeeded maybe not to an amazing level at UCF or to what UCF expected, but he succeeded to a very high level with three stars and four stars, you know, and we're not talking about upper echelon, four stars or five star talent. He's and he really harped on making that talent good. You know, got he he recruited a lot of guys and signed a lot of guys who a lot of people did not want. You know, I like to call them four-star rejects. They're, they're four stars, but the big guys don't want them anymore because they like to go with the big and fast, and this guy might just be fast or he might just be big. He doesn't have both. And I, and I think that at Tennessee, instead of getting, you know, having a culture is what they need to have, especially on the recruiting trail. This is a team that has kind of just been swinging for the big guys for the last two to five years where they swing for five stars, but do the five stars really fit what they have going at Tennessee? Not necessarily. Or they swing for a guy like Cade Mays a couple of years ago and they completely swing and miss. And now the rest of their recruiting class at the offensive line doesn't, you know, it doesn't formulate because this is the guy that they really, really wanted and they missed out on him. So, you know, from a recruiting standpoint, I think Hypo will come in and he'll get some guys that, you know, the University of Tennessee might think are no names, but will produce on the field as opposed to getting a bunch of big names who end up becoming duds by year, you know, two or three and are in the transfer portal by the time that they've been and don't finish their careers at, at Tennessee. So I think Hypo from that standpoint is a really good hire. I'm really excited to see what he does uh, from a culture standpoint at his offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator positions, because for me, there's no way he and Cheney fit the same. That's just they're, – they're, no. There's no way that happens. Cheney's not going to all of a sudden run in – okay, cool. I was like, Cheney can't stay. There's no way those two are staying together. Uh, so I'm excited to see what he does with that. A lot of people wanted Cheney out. And then the SEC, everybody's going to an air raid anyways. This is a good hire from that regard, especially at the top, you know, Alabama. No longer running a power eye, Jim Cheney. I'm sorry, it's not, not 2006 anymore. You know, Georgia, as much as they want to stay pro style, you saw JT Daniels begin to, you know, expand the offense through the end of the year. 
Similar things need to happen in Tennessee if you're going to keep up with those guys. And I think Josh Heupel will bring them into the 21st century with his offense. Uh, yeah, power eye. I mean, that's closer to 99 than 2006. You know what I mean? But uh, let me ask you. Let me ask you guys this before we go down to to the bottom 10 teams here. Uh, Nick, is Tennessee in two seasons? Are they closer to being on this first show uh, in the offseason when we talk about the bottom dweller teams, or the last show where we talk about the top? five or 10 teams? It's going to be difficult for Tennessee to fall the, to into the triple digits because one thing, and, and I might've glossed over this when I was uh, doing the, the sort of intro earlier, uh, a big, big part of our, you know, I mentioned the individual player ratings and, and those are based on recruiting ratings. And, and so Tennessee is just always going to have mm-hmm. more talent than, teams in this range, teams even in the the triple digits. I think we've got two, maybe three uh, teams, power five teams in the triple digits in our our final rankings. Uh, Kansas is on our list today. Uh, Vanderbilt was there this year after a particularly bad year. Uh, They're 117th. Uh, Syracuse is 109. And I I think that's... It, unless I'm unless I'm just totally whiffing on somebody, but yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be difficult because I, I think Tennessee has enough prestige still, even if it's you know decades ago winning championships now, um, that they're they're going to be able to recruit at a certain level. I don't see them falling into that sort of Vanderbilt Kansas range. I just it. it a lot. I mean, these these yeah. sanctions would have to be just enormous, I think, for, for that to happen. So it's going to be tough to fall that far. And I I, I hesitate to say that they will but, I mean, really rise. Them closer to this show than the first show. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's two years from now. It depends on the sanctions. It, it sounds like uh, they'll be, you know, relatively heavy and uh if if that's the case something in that 75 range you know uh yeah but fbs average uh 65 or 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 worse that's that's certainly possible yeah Yeah. i might i might lean to that if if uh if i had to choose one today and i won't ask xavier because we all know the answer it's closer to to the bottom than it is the top i I know i'm am i wrong xavier I mean, the window is here. If, if, if Tennessee is going to make a move in the next two years, the window is available. You really look at the rest of the SEC East, and it's Georgia and everybody else. As far as uh, of a talent situation, yes, Florida had this really great year with Florida had this really great year with Kyle Trask. But do they figure out their quarterback situation again, or you know, are we looking? They at always another? have recruits. I mean, that's true. That's true. Florida always has recruits, and it kind of doesn't matter their sanctions. They're always going to have recruits. Tennessee, I, I think it matters more. So, That's fair. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, look, t- Tennessee, we expect Tennessee to be closer to the top than they are to the bottom within the next three or four years. That's for sure. Hopefully, they go through the sanctions. They're done in a couple of years, and then they're out of it. Hopefully, this is sure a long, drawn-out uh, process for them. So, uh, But let's talk about these teams, and I'm going to list them off, and then we're going to go one by one. So uh, just starting at the bottom, the dead last worst-ranked team, according to CFB Winning Edge, 130 out of 130 is UMass. They are at the very bottom, followed up by Bowling Green at 129, Louisiana Monroe at 128, Akron at 127. These are all teams that played this year 
who are below two teams that didn't play a game. New Mexico State is apparently going to play in the spring. They're at 126. UConn is at 125. Then we have UTEP at 124. Kansas at 123. Utah State at 122. And UNLV at 121. So, Nick, starting with UMass, you know, 0-4. They started three different quarterbacks in four games. Uh, they didn't have a lot of identity on offense. The, the defense is actually okay. They had six sacks and 14 tackles for loss against FAU. Um, they still have their team captain and Josh Wallace, who seems to be a pretty good lockdown corner, but they seem to have talent uh, on the offensive side at wide receiver and tight end, but Walt Bell wants to run the ball and establish the run, and it's not something that they have been able to do. So uh, tell us about UMass. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned before, there's really nowhere to go but up. And and UMass, it starts with a lack of talent, first and foremost. I mean, they rank 130th overall in our roster strength metrics. Uh, they rank 130th in offensive roster strength. Like you mentioned, the quarterback position was a major issue uh, this year, started with uh, a bit of a surprise senior starter and then moved to a true freshman, Will Koch. Uh, he, you know, started the, the middle two games. U UMass was 0-4. Uh, and then he had a rib injury, uh, couldn't play in the finale against Liberty, and, and they decided to go for uh, redshirt freshman Garrett uh, DeZuro, who actually ended up being the team's leading passer, 215 yards over four games. Uh, was was the leading passer there at, at UMass, and you know part of that is is uh, what you know the talent that they've got available. As I mentioned, part of it, UMass only played four games, but they were a pretty tough four games. Uh, they, you know they played Liberty, they played Georgia Southern, they played FAU, and who am I missing? They played uh, also. I remember uh, reading that all the all the defenses <laughs> should have had played. it in front of me. Uh, all the defenses that they played ranked in the top 25 um, as far as stats go. Uh, if Marshall. 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 Spent some time in, in the top 25 this year. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, they, the defenses, as you mentioned, all of those were tough. Uh, UMass scored one touchdown this year. They scored 12 points in, in four games. So, you know, uh, Really, just they, it was good for them, and, and you know, you know, Walt Bell mentioned how important it was that that they had the opportunity to play. More importantly than than the four games, where all the practices got a little bit better understanding. I mean, this was his second year as a, a head coach, a little bit better understanding of his roster. We got to see Ellis Merriweather, who uh, at a you know JUCO running back. Uh, transfer, 230-pound guy, uh, saw a little bit of what he could do. Samuel Amulus at, at receiver and, and O.C. Johnson, uh, those guys showed, you know, a couple of flashes here and there, had, uh, you know, some acrobatic catches and, and uh, flashing good speed and, and things like that. There are two building blocks on the offensive line, Max Longman, Lamel Coleman, uh, you know, give some hope for the future. And, and as you mentioned, the, the defense showed compared at least to, you know, 2019 when they were historically bad, showed some improvement. I mean, you know, linebacker Cole McCubrey led the team in tackles. Also uh, one stat that, that I like a lot and, and we'll refer to uh, from PFF. They, they 
account for total pressures, which you can find a lot of places, but I think they do a good job of, of putting a, uh, getting a solid grip on that number. He led them with nine pressures and then also what they call stops, just, just, uh, uh, you know, different than tackles, but actually, uh, put the, the stop to a play. And, and, uh, he had 13 of those, which, which led the team, but he just entered the transfer portal, uh, along with, uh, you know, their other solid linebacker, Mike, uh, Ruane. And, and I apologize if I, mispronounce any of those names but you know they they had some guys who showed some improvement helped you know make some improvements statistically at least compared to what was a a horrible horrible year in 2019 but even that you know the best statistic of of the five big ones that we look at we look at yards per play both offense defense and net uh epa expected points batted both offense defense and marginal uh, points per drive, the same three, uh, success rate on offense or defense, and, and then also on the margin and yards per pass attempt, which has historically been uh, one of the best correlated uh, in NFL specifically. There have been some studies that yards per pass attempt is most correlated with success on the field in the NFL, but that carries over to, to uh, you know college football as well. And you know, UMass finished 127th in net yards per play, 127th. This is out of the 127th play in EPA margin, 127th in net points per drive, 127th in net success rate. But their past defense showed a, a little bit of promise. They finished 84th in, in net, or excuse me, in yards per pass attempt allowed and showed some promise, 125th in, in yards per pass attempt. So that's 122nd in, in net. So tough, you know, uh, tough but uh, to, to – really difficult season some building blocks on offense a little bit of success on defense josh wallace i thought was was probably the best uh defender sophomore corner cornerback led the team had five pass breakups one of the highest rated uh players uh, for them on defense but uh yeah they're they're already entering the transfer portal and that's going to be a big part of their offseason so interested yeah, they've got some p5 names uh, five guys coming in, including a, a transfer quarterback from Colorado. But, you know, they've got a lot of work to do on, on this roster construction uh, to be able to, to make a step forward next year. Yeah, I mean, UMass, Xavier, uh, they've got, got to improve on both sides. But the defense is okay, just like Nick mm -hmm. mentioned. You know, I mean, uh, so really they need to focus on fixing the offense here. Yeah, and that's exactly what they're doing on the recruiting chart. You know, out of the 18 commitments that they have, only two of them are defensive. So, you, I mean, you look at what they're doing. Excuse me, three of them are defensive. So when you look at what UMass is trying to do going into next year, it's really bolstering that offense. I mean, I've counted, I think, three receivers so far, a tight end, uh, four receivers, and like three athletes. They're trying to get better on the outside. They're trying to give more speed to that offense so that they can actually produce offensively. And once again, you know, I, I think this should be said at the beginning, at the top. A lot of these teams at the bottom of this, you know, outside of like Kansas and I think one other one, didn't get to play their normally allotted FCS opponents for this year. So, you know, yes, they finished 0-4, but they, like Nick said, they played four tough teams. Marshall was ranked. FAU's not no slouch at all. You know, Liberty, we saw how good that they were this year. Like So at the end of the day, they weren't able to play, you know, their, their FCS opponents, which doesn't give us a great uh, amount of – a lot of amount of uh, – what word am I looking for here? Uh, 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 game time or experience to kind of pull from when we're talking about this team. And so I really think that, you know, given their full schedule next year, I think they'll be better. 
And like I said, they're really trying to do that on the recruiting trail this year by going after so many offensive players. Uh, yes, it's UMass, so once again, you have to you know remember that when they're recruiting, it's probably going to be three stars. But three stars are a kind of group of people that you can uh, – Throughout their four years, you'll be able to grow and be able to get them to the place that you want them to be, that they may not be on day one. So UMass offensively, I think, will get better next year just simply based off of the recruiting trail as a whole. Uh, and defensively, I think they'll get better as well, like Nick said. Yeah, I mean, the, they get they got nowhere to go but up, for sure. But Literally. Uh, I, I tell you what, Bowling Green, this, yeah. this one, Bowling Green is worse than UMass, in my opinion. And uh, like Nick said before, the numbers don't take into account opinion. They just take into account uh, statistical things, coaching rankings, all the stuff that Nick mentioned before. But, I mean, when you look at Bowling Green, they were 0-5. Uh, Scott Loeffler has decided to make some staff changes. He's giving uh, offensive play calling to his OC Terry Malone. They have had one wide receiver touchdown in the last 17 games. They allowed Akron to beat them to snap a 21-game winless streak for Akron. And, uh, you know, just not – they didn't have push on either side of the line, and they rostered 63 freshmen last year. So a lot of growth needing to happen at Bowling Green this year, Nick. Yeah, I'll agree. I, I watched a, a couple of UMass games live this year. They played FAU, I believe it was on a Friday, so got to got to see that live. Uh, watched a little bit of the Georgia Southern game live because it was UMass's first game. Was kind of interested to see if we could detect any, uh, you know, first, uh, uh, you know. It, any signs of, of growth there. Uh, Bowling Green, we also got a, a little chance, uh, maybe more than normal, to see them once the MAC uh, kicked it off with, you know, the Tuesday night games. And, and so we're able to see uh, a little bit more Bowling Green, at, at least at the beginning of the season, than we probably would normally, at least, you know, not in a situation where they're getting blown out uh, by, a you know, an SEC opponent in week one or, or something like that. But, in that window, I will agree. I, I think that Boston College looked like a worse team than UMass. And, and uh, part of that, you know, Matt McDonald, a Boston College transfer on paper, is somebody who should be uh, a little bit better, a little bit further along as a passer than he looked uh, like this year. And, and Bowling Green did have some success running the football. Tyrion Stewart, a true freshman, ended up leading the team in rushing and, and only played in uh, four of their five games, but uh, flashed some big playability there. And, and that, along with some you know relatively highly rated guys, Andrew Clare coming back has had some success in his career. Tight end Quentin Morris is currently practicing at the Senior Bowl. Uh, so he's a guy that that is a little bit of a weapon that they can build around. The offensive line did have uh, you know, a couple of guys that graded out decently well. Derek Downs was in the, the low to mid 70s and in, in his overall uh, grade, according to PFF, and, and also in, in pass blocking and run blocking. And then, you know, Sam uh, Nurlev had a, a, a pass block grade over 80, which is relatively impressive, especially for, uh, you know, this group. But defensively, they were just a, a complete mess in, in most every uh, you know, most most every sense, especially against the the run, and and that's been an issue for Brian Van Gorder for quite a while. Uh, their defensive coordinator there, and and it kind of carried over to to this year. But you know, there is some talent to work with, and that's partly why Bowling Green 
is a little bit ahead of UMass because Matt McDonald is a, a P5 transfer. They're 117th in quarterback rating compared to UMass at 129. At the running back position, we mentioned that the guys that they've got, a couple of them picked up. You know, Stewart picked up a few uh, production points along the way. That unit's actually ranks 80th, which isn't great by any stretch, but that's 45 spots ahead of UMass at that position. Running backs aren't a huge part of our uh, you know, equation in, in calculating roster strength or, or team strength, but it helps and it shows that uh, they're at least not the worst of the worst at several positions. They're, you know, 115th in the offensive line, they're 100th at D line, at 90th overall. That's, that's the big thing. They are the only team among these 10 who is outside of, of triple digits in our overall roster strength numbers. That's partly why they're, you know, a little bit higher, but those team performance numbers and, and defensive numbers are, are really dragging that team back down. They ranked 127th in overall team performance. They ranked 125th in defensive team performance. Uh, the offensive line was a little bit of a bright spot. The running back position, a little bit of a bright spot. But I agree. My eyes told me that, that Bowling Green might have been the worst team uh, in college football this year. Yeah, Bowling Green rough, Xavier. Uh, what are your thoughts on them moving forward? Yeah, but it gets better. You know, when, when you look at, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to a recruiting class a lot for these teams because we're talking about the future of these ball clubs. Bowling Green ranked eighth out of the out of uh, the MAC this year, the eighth, eighth out of 12 teams. And, and when you really look at it, like I said, it, it's getting better. You know, for a team to change its fortunes, you really have to start the recruiting trail. There's really no other way to go unless you're a team that picks up a lot of grad transfers. In this case, they have a transfer in, in, in you know, their quarterback from Boston College. He should be better in the second year, I would hope. But at the end of the day, Bowling Green is going to be better next year just based off of the fact that they're not dead last in their conference because you kind of get a good uh, barometer of where a team is, not from the conference and not just how good they are, but what the kids are seeing from that team as well when they finish you know, dead last in recruiting year after year after year you know, because nobody, nobody wants to go there. And kids are just picking there because it's the only offer or one of their only top offers. And for Bowling Green, it's not necessarily the case. They ranked ahead of Eastern Michigan, Ohio, Akron, who we'll talk about in a second, and Kent State. So it's looking better in the future. I think they'll be better coming into this year. Now, granted, they were three and nine in 2019. Once again, that was that was bolstered by the FCS schedule. They were able to get wins over Morgan State. They were able to beat Toledo as well, and actually Akron, who we will talk about. And obviously, we talk about the drop off that they did have. I hope I expect them to be better. I do not expect them to be winless next year. Let's put it that way. I, I think two wins, three wins, maybe even you know coming on the range of four is a is more than a possibility for Bowling Green going into the next season. Now, uh, the next team here might have had the most miserable season because they got to play all their games, and they mm -hmm. didn't win one. Mm -hmm. uh, Louisiana Monroe, 0-10, <laughs> 0-7 conference. They didn't hold a lead in 10 games. Not once did they have a lead uh, this year, but uh, they fired uh, the whole coaching staff here. Terry Bowden ha has taken over for them uh, for Matt Vietor, and they hired uh, Rich Rod to be their OC. His son, Rhett Rodriguez, transferred in from Arizona as well. Um, and it looks better. Now, they do also have, and this just makes me sick, Nick. They have the youngest defensive coordinator in uh, college football in Zach Alley, who is 27 years old. He was a graduate 
assistant with uh, Clemson under Will Venable. So he's a disciple of Clemson, which is, you know, Terry Bowden was working at Clemson as well. Alonzo ha- Hampton, a former ULM captain, is a new uh, assistant head coach and safeties coach there. And they did have a bunch of guys uh, enter the transfer portal um, when Viator left, but they got a lot of them back. They, they had five come back. So uh, it looks like, you know, uh, there's a lot of excitement about this new coaching staff at ULM. Yeah, I think, and, and you know, deservedly so. I mean, Rich Rodriguez, even a little bit more, I'm, I'm more impressed, I think, that they were able to get Rich Rodriguez than Terry Bowden. I mean, Terry Bowden was fired at Akron a couple of years ago, and, and hey, you know, maybe maybe Akron made a mistake because they've won one game since. And, and yeah. you know, Bowden got them to a couple of bowl games. But you mentioned the the Clemson influence there on on the staff. And Bowden spent the last couple of years as a what sixty nine year old uh, GA at Clemson, and and so uh, that was pretty interesting. And and he had of course ties there. His brother was uh, the. Uh, you know, former head coach there before Davo Sweeney and, and uh, you know, Richrod was there long ago. And, and so there, there's a bit of a Clemson connection. And then he was able to uh, pick up some young assistants, some, you know, guys who are in off the field roles and, and uh, able to give them some promotions and title, get able to uh, bring, a, a, you know, a lot of youth, as you mentioned, to the coaching staff. But, you know, the Rich Rod hire, I think, is is definitely going to be the key. And on the one hand, I think it's, you know, good that we're going to get uh, Rhett Rodriguez. Uh, seems like he, at this point, has got to be the favorite to be the starting quarterback, even though, as you mentioned, guys coming back from the transfer portal, starting quarterback, uh, Colby Suits was mm-hmm. one of those players, and and he ended up you know losing his job a couple of times to Jeremy Hunt. You have to expect that both of those uh, guys will compete with Rodriguez there. But you know, I, on, on the one hand, I'm happy to see that you've got a Power Five transfer coming in. You've got a big time name at, at offensive coordinator, a guy who was a head coach in the Pac-12 just a few years ago, a guy who was an offensive coordinator in the SEC two years ago. And, and, you know, if we could dream just for a little bit, getting way too uh, ahead of ourselves at, at this point in January, but, you know, Asher O'Hara is still in the transfer report. Could you imagine Asher O'Hara running Rich Rod's uh, system there at, at ULM? That's a way to kind of cut down, uh, uh, you know, talent disadvantages and, and things like that. You know, is there any way it's not Rhett, though? I see that's that's exactly what I was saying. On the one hand, it's it's a good move. He's a P5 transfer, coach's son, all of that. You know there's going to be a little bit of sentimental value there. You have to assume he's he's the favorite to to win that job over the guys they've got coming back. But part of me also thinks, man, Asher O'Hara or hey, John Rice Plumley, it looks like you're you know going to be moving to receiver if you're going to stick at Ole Miss. Why not come and uh, reconnect there with uh, with your old play caller at ULM? I know that's a big step down from him, and he plays baseball there for uh, Ole Miss as well. But again, if if we could dream and, and getting too far ahead of ourselves, but ULM was bad, and and were they as bad as Bowling Green? I think there's certainly a debate to be made. Uh, they they did, and and we do. When I refer to team performance rankings, real quick. We, we have to use placeholder stats for the three teams that didn't play. So UConn, New Mexico State, and Old Dominion do have team performance rankings uh, that 
are are part of a, a 130. So uh, it might sound a little bit confusing. It'll be less confusing as we move down into the lower rankings here. But ULM ranked 128th in team performance. The only team that ranked uh, worse, actually, is who we're going to talk about uh, later in Akron. Believe it or not, despite winning a game, ranked one spot worse in overall team performance ranking. ULM uh, ranked a little bit better, or excuse me, uh, ranked worse than, than Bowling Green and UMass overall in team performance ranking. Connecticut, for an odd reason, ended up 130. New Mexico State, oddly, is ahead. Uh, it's it's a little strange. Don't get too caught up in it. It's partly just to, to help us flash out the, the rest of the teams that did play. But, uh, you know, regardless, ULM had issues on offense, defense, and special teams, ranked 127th across the board, offense, defense, and, and special teams. And, you know, there there are a few bright spots. You mentioned Josh, uh, Josh Peterson had 61 targets last year, 32 catches. Kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. Thought he might have an opportunity to go to a bigger, you know, maybe even a power five school, maybe uh, get drafted here in a, a year or two. It's going to be not the, the best system maybe for him with Rich Rod calling the plays, but I have to uh, assume that Rich Rod will say, okay, I've got one guy at least to build around, and, and that's Josh Peterson. So interested to see how he gets involved. Uh, as I was diving into the numbers, uh, defensively there were a couple of guys I was really impressed with. And maybe these are our two guys that you can build around defensively. Linebacker Travian Webster had 82 tackles, eight and a half tackles for loss. Led the team in both categories. Also led the team with 31 stops and 19 pressures. That's that's a good a good building block. And then an interior defensive lineman Kevin Pinter really was a bright spot. Uh, just sort of his whole you know uh, looking at his PFF grade, looking a little bit deeper into you know. Those guys don't really fill up the stat sheet, but he was still able to do enough, put together enough production and, and impress enough to get 10 production points. For double-digit production points for an interior defensive lineman is a pretty rare uh, thing to happen across college football, according to our, our numbers. So for redshirt freshmen to be able to come in and do that, uh, certainly a, a key building block there in the middle of that defense. So maybe some signs uh, that they'll be at least a little bit better in 2021. Pretty exciting ULM team here, Xavier. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, for me, this is one of my more disappointing teams in 2020. I mean, this is a team that the year before lost to Florida State in overtime. And I was like, okay, well, let's see, you know, how good ULM was. I got to watch them in person, you know, or, or I got to watch them, excuse me, play Georgia State last year or two years ago, and, and they bludgeoned us and beat us 45-31. And I was like, okay, this ULM team is building and is a team that's going to be formidable coming into 2020. And then 2020 came. And it was like, what has happened to the team that I was privy to last year? They were nowhere near that. And that they weren't that from day one. I mean, they get, you know, ramshackled by Army. And it went all downhill from there. And, and for me, the coaching staff makes me excited. You know, having it first off, I think it's really cool having a 27-year-old defensive coordinator. I think, you know, how what better way to get to the players than having a guy who was a player like literally three, you know, you know, three to five years ago, you know, and, and can instill some of that. He might even put on the pads for a practice to see, you know, you, you never know what you can do with a guy that young. He said a, he's only been mistaken. Uh, and this is in his introductory <laughs> press conference. He's only been mistaken for a player like 10 times. So. See, and I think that's great. I think that that kind of camaraderie that you can build with a guy that young is, is going to do, be, is going to do really good things for them. Obviously having a Brett Venable disciple, We'll see how that goes. I mean, his tree now begins. We'll see. We'll see. Let's see what happens from that. You know, uh, but I really like ULM coming into this year. 
when, like I said, when you look at the recruiting team, uh, when you look at recruiting again, you're looking at a team that finished that didn't finish dead last in their conference. Heck, before signing day, they were in the top half of the conference in recruiting in the Sun Belt. You know, they finished seventh or eighth, but uh, they they were sixth or fifth to sixth going into the last couple of days of signing day. Now they had a couple of guys not commit and, and uh, not sign their letters of intent, so that's why they dropped. But that tells you that you know people are excited about what's going on at ULM, and this should be a team that, like I said, given the opportunity to play the FCS schedule, and I just think the fact that the, the Sun Belt is going to have a lot of tur- is having a lot of turnovers from this year to next. This should be a team that can compete, not necessarily for a Sun Belt title, but in and throughout the conference. I like ULM to win, you know, four or five games next year, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, so we'll see. I mean, lots to be excited about at ULM. And this team, you know, like like uh, Xavier said, not far removed from being a pretty solid one. Uh, Akron is the next team up on the list. They were one and five last year. Uh, the head coach, Tom Arth, did pass up some NFL opportunities to stay at Akron. He's a good friend of new Charger head coach, Brandon Staley. Uh, but in his recruiting, he said he's focusing on winning players. And what that meant to him was guys from teams that won their state title, guys from teams that were all conference, you know, any type of award winning players is what he was trying to get. They did get a very interesting quarterback. DJ Irons transferred in from Iowa Central Community College. He led them to the best record in uh, school history. So there's a little to grow on. They also, you know, they beat Bowling Green for their first win in 21 games. So uh, it did get better in 2020 for them, and 2021 could be even better, Nick. Yeah, and, and beat Bowling Green bad. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was a uh, it was an impressive performance. And, and the it best was like 31 looked, to 13. Was the yeah, and, and like it was uh, it was definitely the best game Akron has played in you know uh, at least a couple of years under, under Tom Arth, and, and I know that was cathartic for him to 31 to three was, was, uh, that, that final. So, you know, it was a, a big win, hopefully something that they'll be able to build on. Uh, it's a, a little bit of a unique situation as you mentioned, but there was some, obviously some, uh, some thought that he might be, uh, picked for, uh, an NFL, uh, coaching staff. And even if, uh, you know, you're in danger maybe of, of losing your head coach in a situation like that to think, okay, this guy who's leading us, there are some eyes that, you know, are in the NFL where I want to get to as a player who, who think that, you know, he's a smart guy. He's going to be able to, you know, capable of coaching professionals, able to uh, take guys to the next level. And so you, you hope that that will give uh, maybe a little bit of a confidence boost in addition to that, that one win for the guys who are coming back to Akron and, and they have lost, you know, some pieces to the transfer portal already. Uh, arguably their two best wide receivers are no longer with the program, Julian Hicks and, and Nate Stewart. Um, you know, they, they did have a situation where Cato Nelson was the experienced quarterback coming into 2020 was the most experienced starting quarterback in the Mac coming into to last year. It made 24, 25 uh, starts in his career for the zips. He didn't play at all this season. And, and I couldn't get, I, I did a little digging and, and uh, watched a, a couple of Akron games and listened for uh, you know, the, the news as to why I did see him on the sideline communicating with uh, Zach Gibson during timeouts, things like that. But it never really was explained. Was it an injury? Was it a 
discipline situation, you know, what, what exactly was going on. But if Nelson's able to come back, he's a guy that, you know, has some athletic ability, has had some success running the football in the past, has also shown some promise as a passer, would be a big step up, I think, uh, over Zach Gibson if, if he's, you know, healthy enough and still in good graces enough and, and coming back to the team in 2021. That's something that we're going to need to watch because I think that, you know, if Nelson's back and healthy, that helps Akron really have an opportunity to take a big step forward. And, you know, Xavier mentioned this talking about ULM and it, it absolutely is true in the Mac and maybe even more so there's an opportunity to, to really, you know, close the gap quickly between the bottom of the conference and at least the middle of the conference. So Akron's not that far away from contending for, you know, being a four or five win team, uh, and, you know, or, or at least, you know, get a, a few wins in conference play. Cato Nelson, I think, would help if, if he's back. We'll have to watch. But Tion Dollar, the Juco running back transfer that they got, really, you know, provided a boost. Had a huge day against Bowling Green, finished with 666 yards and uh, uh, six touchdowns, averaged almost six yards per carry. Definitely a building block there on offense. And then they've got, you know, your classic overachiever linebacker bubble uh bubba arlene uh, are uh, totally butchered these names arslanian i think and, and you know led in almost for every, you to say yeah led in almost every statistical category which the akron defense really 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 pulled this team uh down in, in our team performance rankings but you know Bubba had 74 tackles, four tackles for loss, three sacks tied for the team lead there. Uh, and, you know, uh, the the rest of the unit has a lot of work to do. They only intercepted two passes as a unit. Uh, that's that's actually a theme with these 10 teams. As I was going through the, the uh, you know, record books, the, the, the uh, statistical uh, stats for, for all of these teams, getting turnovers is a big reason why a lot of these teams – underperformed, not being able to produce turnovers. UMass had zero interceptions. Bowling Green had zero interceptions. Uh, ULM had one in 10 games, and Akron had two. And A.J. Watts had both of those, so he and, and Bubba. And then they've also got uh, a, a safety that uh, Tutu Durango, who, who graded out as an 88 tackling, according to PFF. Pretty impressive there. So with those three guys, you know, and, and maybe a little bit help, more health on offense, Going to have to replace those receivers, but you know they're they're dipping into the transfer portal. They've got another uh, you know running back coming in from Michigan State, Anthony Williams. Uh, they do have a quarterback, Braden Hawkins, who is at UL Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, if if Nelson's not healthy, he will be eligible this year. Uh, they've also got some experience there as well, but picked up a couple of uh, P five transfers uh, as well on defense. Uh, Jeslord Boateng from Michigan State and Jalen Kelly-Powell from Michigan. Uh, those guys hopefully will be able to, to come in and, and help, uh, you know, strengthen that unit because it certainly certainly needs it. But they can build up upon with uh, Ashlanian and with, uh, with Duranjo and, and with Watts. And, you know, maybe you improve that unit and the offense takes a, another step forward and Akron could give some teams some trouble next year. What do you think about Akron, Xavier? Yeah, Nick hit around the head. This is a conference that every year seems to go like this. And so the opportunity for Akron is there to make, you know, a, a sizable jump. 
<laughs> to make a sizable jump from, from one and five to possibly being in the mid-tier part of the conference. It wouldn't be crazy for that to be a situation going into next year when we saw Ball State jump from, you know, five and seven to the winners of the conference last year. So it's not, you know, it wouldn't be unexpected is not the right word, but it wouldn't be insurmountable for them to make a, a jump that big. When I look at them recruiting-wise, Nick, you hit it right on the head. They are trying to get help on defense, especially at linebacker and at corner. They have signed four corners and three interior linebackers. They are trying to get any kind of help around in those two spots and trying to bolster that side of the field, which is going to be necessary. I mean, when you have great players like you, like the two that you've highlighted, you've got to put pieces around them, or they're just going to be washed in, in you know, a, a sea of mediocrity. And, and that's kind of what has happened with both of those players and the lack of notoriety that each one of them has gotten. When I look, like I said, when I look at Akron, they broke the 21 you know, game losing streak. And looking at their schedule going into next year, they don't have it all the way out. I'm not going to speculate on just the four games that they have because they're against like Ohio State. I'm not going to say anything about that. So, I, you know, looking at, you know, their schedule. You know, I don't they're going to challenge Ohio State, Xavier? Come on. They play Ohio State and Auburn next year. I don't, I'm not going there. Yeah, I, yeah, no. They, I don't know who their non-conference guys is. They got Bryant, so they got the FCS pick, but. Their non-conference schedule is Auburn, Bryant, Temple, and Ohio State. I'm not so sure how I'm how they're going to do in that. So they're going to have to pick up some wins in the conference. Like Nick said, it's a possibility that that happens, and I hope it happens for them. Uh, New Mexico State is the next team up here. They did not play, but Nick, they're planning on playing spring ball right now. And uh, not a lot of news on New Mexico State. Whenever I'm trying to look stuff up, I keep getting uh, you know tweets about how Doug Martin makes more than Fauci. So uh, th that's like the, the most recent news for New Mexico State. But they're at practice. Uh, they're practicing right now, and they're going to get playing. New Mexico just opened up, uh, you know, so they're able to play actual home games at home. So uh, it seems like we're going to see them in action fairly quickly. Yeah, and, and just uh, as a quick aside, and I was muted when I tried to interject, but uh, let the record show that when Xavier said the MAC was a conference that is like this, he was giving uh, some, you know, stepping motions with his hands uh, to, to show that there was there was room there uh, for growth. But uh, yeah, That's you, you know, one production point. We're on. We're, we're, <laughs> yeah, we can't see you, Come on. We don't usually knock production points, but on rare occurrences. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, New, New Mexico State. Hey, you want to learn more about a team? we should have some opportunities and, and uh, they're hopeful to get three games in the first uh, being February 20th against an FCS, a rising FCS opponent in Tarleton uh, state. They play a division two opponent in New Mexico Highlands. And then they also play uh, again, a recent FCS uh, riser in Dixie state. So you'd have to think that New Mexico state, at least on paper is a heavy favorite, you know, to go three and zero this spring if they get three games. So, uh, will be a, a great opportunity. I saw they're going to get something like, uh, you know, forty practices. Uh, you know, if if things go to plan, and and hopefully they will, because at the very least they're getting an extended spring practice, and and uh, you know they'll get a good opportunity to to look at a lot of JUCO transfers coming in. They've got some. Uh, FBS transfers as well, including a couple of, you know, relatively high profile guys, a, a local product who went to Michigan. Uh, Omari Samuels was a, a you know four star guy, uh, talented enough to, to uh, 
be considered a, a real rising star in that program when he signed, uh, ends up coming back to New Mexico State. You have to think that he's going to be a, a big, big part of the offense. You know, they lost Jason Huntley, was drafted in the fifth round last year. They also lost uh, Navion Mitchell, who was kind of a dynamic skill set a little bit of a, a running back wide receiver hybrid could do a lot of different things. He's in the transfer portal right now. So it's going to be Omari Samuels in the backfield, but then they're going to want to throw the ball a lot. They've got two quarterbacks competing, Jonah Johnson and Weston Egan, a junior college transfer and a redshirt freshman. You know, we're going to get to see what they can do. And they've brought in a, a lot of receivers uh, from the, the junior college ranks, I saw an early practice report that Justice Powers seems to be impressing. He's a 6'4 target, uh, so he's a guy that, that you expect is going to be a big part of the offense. I also saw mention of a true freshman, uh, Jadarian Smith, seems to be impressing some people. He's you know 5'9", 150 according to 247 Sports. So uh, going to be, I'm sure, you know, a, a, maybe even smaller than that, but uh, you have to think a, a speed guy and, and hopefully they'll be able to uh, put him in positions to be successful as well. And they've got a, a couple of other transfers that might be in the mix, a, a former, uh, you know, three-star guy at Georgia, Josh Moran, uh, might, you know, have an opportunity to get on the field. He's injured right now, but uh, looking ahead to the 2021 fall season, you know, maybe he becomes a, a bigger part of that offense. And then they've got a couple of uh, SEC transfers on the offensive line. Darvis Holmes uh, from Missouri and a center, Eli Johnson from Ole Miss, who's going to definitely be a big part uh, of, of that offense. They lost a lot of uh, talent on defense, you know, three of their best players uh, and, and you know, uh, three re- three starters who are expected to be returning starters going into 2021 transfer nose tackle miles uh vignet is, is still in the transfer portal i believe rashi hodge who's a really productive linebacker in the transfer portal and then roy lopez who had a, a really solid career at new mexico state transferred to arizona played this past fall and you know is, is off to the nfl draft and has an outside chance maybe to be drafted at least maybe get a shot in training camp. So, uh, you know, there's, there's reason to be optimistic about the offense. They're able to, to raise the talent level. And I know that, that Doug Martin has showed some uh, real optimism for that side of the football, but defense is going to be an issue because they, they lost a ton of production already. Uh, they lost arguably three of their best players. And it, it sounded like that first practice report. I, I read uh, Xander Yarbrough, who is, uh, you know, the only returning Defensive lineman who was a starter last year wasn't at practice. So did he opt out? Is he in the transfer portal? Maybe he was injured. Maybe something else is is going on and he'll be back or, or maybe is already back. We just don't know yet. But, you know, good thing that, that New Mexico State is going to be more talented than the three uh, teams that they're playing, should have more depth. But, you know, looking ahead to uh, an independent schedule in the fall of, of – uh, you know, 2021, where they've got some some pretty, <laughs> you know, some some pretty big names. They're going to be at a disadvantage against teams like San Diego State, Hawaii, defending uh, Mountain West champ San Jose State. Nevada was a team really on the rise. They play Alabama November 13th. They play Kentucky. So, you know, it's good for them to get this extended spring and, and get a, a look at these guys and really know what they've got heading into the fall. Hopefully they'll be able to pick up 
some confidence with a three and O season probably would be a giant, you know, <laughs> uh, hit to that confidence if they lose one of these games. So maybe it's a, a no win situation in, in some respects, but uh, looking ahead to the fall, New Mexico state's going to be, I wouldn't be surprised if they actually start next year ranked 130th uh, on, on this list. And, and we'll have those updates in the next couple of months, but depending on what happens this fall, they will have an opportunity to get some production points. But I, I just, from where, where their roster is right now. And, you know, that includes uh, uh, an overall uh, talent ranking, roster strength ranking of one, uh, 129. So only UMass right now, UMass is, is actually bringing in more uh, P5 talent through the transfer portal. And as Xavier mentioned, uh, just plain old recruiting. So I wouldn't be surprised if New Mexico State is the least talented team on paper in the fall of 2021. Uh, and we'll just sort of have to see how, how their spring season shakes out. But, you know, looking on the, the sunny side of things, an extended spring practice hopefully will we'll pay dividends in the fall. Xavier, your thoughts on New Mexico State? Going to get yeah. to see them. Yeah, I was going to say similar to what Nick said. I, I'm excited to see what they look like in, in the springtime. Obviously, spring football is fun to watch for everybody. But I, I think that that's going to be a really good barometer for just where how good they are. You know, not necessarily in comparison to their, you know, P5, uh, excuse me, uh, FBS counterparts. But like Nick said, if they lose to any of these, you know, Division II teams, it's going to really hurt. This is a lose-lose situation in, in the highest order because if they lose, then they're going to be on the cover of Sports Center. If they win, nobody really cares from outside of their fan base and obviously you and us who listen to this podcast. But, you know, so I think that that's – it's it's a tough situation to be in because would you rather just have a regular spring practice? I'm not so sure. I don't know. You know, it's one thing we saw it last year with um, – was it Navy that didn't do any, you know, any hitting in practice? And we saw what happened in their first game, and then they completely threw that out of the window and hit for the rest of the season. So, you know, do you want to go an entire year without football? I don't know. But we'll see how it works for them coming into this year. From a recruiting standpoint, funny enough, they actually recruit they actually recruit pretty decently for an independent school. They're ranked third um, or, excuse me, fourth out of all independents in the country, right under Liberty. Uh, and actually them and Liberty are like a point difference and Liberty went 10 and one last year and New Mexico state obviously didn't play. So from a recruiting standpoint, they're not awful. They're not even at the bottom. Uh, UMass ranks the lowest on the traditional recruiting scale. Uh, so I think that New Mexico state from a recruiting standpoint, obviously is able, is bringing in some pretty good talent right now. Uh, and like I said, these three games aren't really going to tell us all too much, but it will, if they lose. So I think, you know, from a New Mexico state standpoint, You've got to win these games, and you've got to win them in style, you would think, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you should be winning these games big. So, uh, you know, <laughs> we have them favored by at least 20 in all three games so far. Yeah, so exactly. That's yeah. a lot of guesswork because we, we just sort of plug in generic uh, numbers for the, the FCS and the D2 schools, but – yeah, you would think they'll win these by multiple scores. Yeah, just get get a little experience, too, and uh, go into the fall uh, with a little more. So how about um, how about UConn? I mean, a lot has been made out of UConn. Uh, you know, I, I feel like they're the team that might be dead at the bottom. I mean, ULM probably had the worst year. I think Bowling Green looked the worst. UConn didn't play, though. But they did have some articles written on them because they were the first team to opt out of the season. The New York Times, you know, applauded them for National that. Champs. 
Yeah, yeah. Said they should be national champs. And, and then uh, you mentioned, I think it was only them, New Mexico State, and Old Dominion were the only three that did wind up playing at least one game. So uh, very, very weird year for them. Uh, a lot of it has been tied back to money for UConn, but... Uh, you know, they're, they're independent now. Um, this is obviously a basketball school, Nick. So, uh, what do we think about UConn football moving forward? Sorry, Lob, you know, our boyfriend, <laughs> so sorry to him, but it's not looking great. Well, I was actually in, in uh, maybe coming to, to John's defense here, uh, going to push back a little bit on, on the idea that UConn is among the worst of the worst heading into 2021. I, I will get to see the difference between UConn and, and New Mexico State because they do have a lot of similarities and, and just sort of how the programs operate. Are the Aggies going to get a, a benefit from this, you know, three-game spring schedule, whatever that turns out to be, versus, as Xavier said, you know, a, a taking an entire year off? How is that? You think of the rust that, that we see sometimes in week one of a normal year. But think of it, they didn't even have a week one in the previous year. And, and also the, the real, you know, red flag around UConn for the last 300 and whatever days is they've had 30 players enter the transfer portal since the end of the 2019 season. That's more than an, an entire recruiting class. So that's a, that's a problem. Uh, and they're not really going into – uh, the transfer portal to fill those holes. So uh, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about that. That includes even some recent names. Keyshawn Paul was a corner, uh, experienced guy, started 10 games in his career, uh, was a returning starter coming back. You know, one of the most experienced players that they've got on defense recently entered the transfer portal. Caleb on the defensive line. The defensive line on paper looked like it was going to be a strength. I mean, they ranked 103rd in our D-line rankings uh, from, a, from a roster standpoint in 2020. But, you know, Caleb Thomas, 21 uh, career start, second most on that unit, is in the transfer portal. A couple of guys a little lower on the depth chart as well, uh, even beyond, you know, what we had going into the, the 2020 season with the vast majority of those players had, had entered the transfer portal. But there's some – Pieces to, to like on offense, and, and that's the biggest reason I, I'll push back just a little bit. Running back, Kevin Mensa, I think is pretty good. I, I'm surprised he's still there. I'm surprised he didn't uh, hop out to you know a school in the MAC or, or something like that and put together some, some pretty good you know games as a senior in 2020. Sounds like he's sticking around. Last I heard, I haven't heard any news of him, you know, moving on to professional life elsewhere or, or transferring or, or anything like that. There's always a chance we might miss something, but sounds like Mince is going to be back, and, and he is absolutely something you can build around. And then a couple of sophomores, quarterback Jackson uh, Zergotis had nine starts as a uh, freshman in 2019. So, you know, that that's something that uh, also in competition there with Steven uh, Krajewski. Uh, who's who's got a little bit of experience as well. You expect, you know, one of those guys is, is going to win that job and, and give them a sophomore signal caller to build around. And, and then uh, Cameron Ross, sophomore receiver, coming back at three production points as a true freshman in 2019. So, you know, those guys, and then also they've, they've got an experienced tackle, assuming, again, I didn't miss a, a transfer notice, but Ryan Van Denmark, who's 
on track to be a senior in 2020. Hopefully he'll be back as a super senior in, in 2021. He started 33 games. So if you've got your left tackle, if you've got a go-to receiver, you've got a running back and you've got a, an experienced quarterback to build around, the offense, I think, has really some signs of hope at least. And, you know, they do have DJ Morgan at, at linebacker maybe and, and Omar Fort. Those maybe can be some guys in addition to some experience up front. Maybe that defense takes another step as well. But moving to an independent schedule, leaving the American, there is, you know, maybe a little bit more hope that uh, they'll be able to, to pick up some wins. They pay, play UMass. They play uh, Yale, which is which is a fun one. I've got my uh, the game Harvard-Yale uh, cap on right now as, as we record. So an FPS, uh, FCS program there. FCS. Holy Cross, also in state. Uh, and then, you know, they're going to play Army a lot in, in the future. They're always going to play UMass. That's a rival. They're going to take their lumps. They play Clemson. They play UCF. Uh, but, hey, you know, some other some other games might be winnable. Middle Tennessee, that game might be winnable. Wyoming doesn't have a talent advantage against almost anybody. They're, they're constant overachievers. But, you know, can we mark that down as an, as, as an immediate loss? I would hesitate. I mean, you know, I certainly would say Wyoming would be favored, but uh, I, I say that that game is conceivably winnable. And then Vanderbilt won exactly as many games in 2020 as UConn did. So uh, they certainly have a, a talent advantage, but they were 0-9. Vanderbilt and, would smoke UConn. Come on. I know I know. we're putting a silver lining here. I, yeah, I, yeah. I get what you're saying, <laughs> but Vanderbilt – Ranks 117. You know, we're yeah. we're going to talk about Vanderbilt next week. Right, right. <laughs> so, uh, yes, Vanderbilt would be favored, but you know, not huge. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they're probably going to be favored by single digits. Wouldn't in, be the biggest shock in the world, but I, sure. I think I think Vanderbilt. Sure. But I, I think there's reason to be optimistic about the future of UConn football. Once you you stop the bleeding of guys leaving the program and can actually build around some of these guys who've shown some flashes, shown some potential in, in the past, and then, you know, have winnable games on the schedule. Uh, have a couple of FCS opponents. You know, Army has has scheduled in a similar way to get some guaranteed wins, uh, you know, as an FBS independent. UConn is, is doing that as well, playing some old rivals, playing some local uh, teams, Maybe they're able to, to build some pride, some confidence in those games, and maybe pick off uh, one or two FBS opponents along the way because, you know, some of those games, absolutely. I mean, Middle Tennessee is a, a definitely a team in transition. Vanderbilt didn't win a game, you know. So uh, not saying UConn's going to be 500 or better next year, but I, I think they've got a shot at three wins. Yeah, I mean, look, UConn has pieces, Xavier, and uh, – not not out of the realm of possibility to get some wins, you know. Like Nick said, the schedule is favorable sometimes. How how do you see UConn going in twenty twenty one? Yeah, I mean, as much as I I, I want to crap on what Nick said, he's right. I mean, their schedule is really favorable. I mean, I would pick them over over Holy Cross. I would have them picked over Yale. I would have them probably picked over UMass at this point. Um, and, and then the rest of their schedule was a crapshoot. I mean, outside of Clemson and UCF and, and probably Purdue. Every other game, I expect them to be in, you know, and if we have some blowouts early on in the year against, you know, Fresno State, and if they get blown out by Vanderbilt, then we know how bad Connecticut is. But at the end of the day, their schedule 
going to independence the best thing UConn could have ever done. You know, leaving the American means they don't have to play, you know, top quality. They're not forced into a schedule. They can fix their schedule the way they want to for how good or how bad they actually are. Uh, from a recruiting standpoint, I guess the rest of the country sides with me and Scott. They are finishing second to last on the recruiting schedule, uh, on the recruiting rankings on the independent page. You know, there were only one point or two points ahead of uh, Massachusetts when it comes to recruiting. That's not really good for them, uh, for a team with more name value than some of the other teams that are on this list. You know, when you hear UConn, you might think basketball, but that still carries name value for kids in high school. So regardless, the future for UConn football, it, it was up in the air like two years ago. So for them to be where they're at right now is impressive. And like Nick said, they could easily win three or four games next year. They might win five or six. Let's not take it out of the realm of possibility, which is a long way away from when we thought UConn football was done for good. So uh, the, the next team up here ha is the only team with multiple wins uh, on this list here. And it's UTEP who uh, three, they finished three and five this year. Um, you know, Dana Dimel, uh hired a new OC in Dave Warner who worked with him at Houston and a new DC in uh, Bradley Dale Pavetto. Uh, they do have four all conference players returning and uh, Jacob Cowing, Deion Hankins, Byers and, Amawule, the defensive end. So there, there's um, you can already see the building blocks for UTEP mm -hmm. here, Nick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I I remember early in the the preseason, and you know, in the, in the final weeks uh, as we're getting ready to kick off, UTEP was our 130th ranked team, and and I was you know really starting to one of my big off season projects last year. This time last year was thinking about okay. In 2019, our numbers, our projections struggled a little bit at this tail end. How can we better identify the worst teams in college football? Because there is a little bit of value, you know, if you're if you're thinking from a, a betting perspective, if you're thinking uh, just in terms of, you know, we, we want to, to be right more often than we're wrong when, when all these projections uh, go. And, and so I was thinking, okay, you tell. From a roster standpoint, it's just not there. I mean, they, they've got a little bit of talent at the running back position, maybe a little bit of talent uh, at receiver, but, you know, they're starting over at quarterback. Kai Loxley is gone. He was a, uh, you know, a power five transfer, and, and uh, there's, just, there's just nothing there. Their recruiting class is all JUCO guys. Our numbers just can't really account for these unranked uh, JUCO guys out of, uh, you know, the, the Texas and New Mexico JUCOs. It's just – for whatever reason, the eyes aren't on them as much, and, and so the ratings aren't really there. So we we basically mark those guys down like they would be walk-ons. And, and UTEP loaded up on a lot of those guys last year, and it just really didn't look good. Once, obviously, you know, COVID hit and the, the uh, schedule changed a little bit, UConn played multiple FCS opponents. That certainly helped. They were able to uh, win – a couple of games and, and build a little bit of momentum. But some of those guys ended up being a lot better, at least than our numbers were able to capture early on. And, and that's partly where production points come in. And, and one thing that we do as well is if one of those guys is unranked, unrated, you know, we use 247 sports composite ratings uh, as the, the number one piece of information in building our player ratings. Well, Gavin Hardison, for example, was one of those guys who we had to put down as a 70 because he was unrated coming out of Juco. Well, come to find out, he's got one of the strongest arms in college football. 
accuracy, touch, things like that are, are a little bit of an issue, but he's got at least, you know, a skill worth building upon. He was able to win that job. So we, we had to give him a little bit of a bump. If a guy proves that he's going to be a full-time starter, we take that 70 rating and make it an 80. And then all of a sudden, you know, that's a, a few points boosted in the right direction at the quarterback position. That carries a lot of weight. UTEP starts to rise a little bit. They got two really, really productive defensive linemen. You missed, you mentioned praise. Uh, I'm a Wule, and, and again, I apologize if I butcher that. But also Keenan Stewart. I mean, this, the, this might be, this is easily the best defensive line duo of the teams that we're going to discuss today. But they're really two of the best defensive linemen from a production standpoint, at least in the group of five. And, and you know, really, if I were to look at the number of production points that these guys added, you know, Stewart had uh, 19 production points this year. Amule had. Uh, over 20. So, I mean, that, those are numbers that we just really don't see often. I mean, you can you can count the number of guys who earned the, that number of production points. Uh, excuse me, Amule had uh, 17 and, and uh, Stewart had 19. But those those kind of production numbers don't exist on you know two on one team. Very very rare. And as a whole, you know, getting into the the high. Uh, teens is is something that's that's really really uh, you know just doesn't happen very often. So those guys were were excellent. They've also uh, you know shown a little bit of progress at, at the linebacker position. Secondary was really a concern, is a concern moving forward because uh, they had a lot of guys enter the transfer portal. But they've got some building blocks on offense. Hardison has a skill set. Deion Hankins, a local product, big running back. And, uh, you know, he scored, what, nine touchdowns this year. So uh, he's, he's certainly a building block on offense. He's, you know, not the fastest guy, uh, not the most athletic guy, but he's hard to bring down. Jacob Cowing really, you know, put up some good numbers, had a lot of targets this year, got a lot of balls thrown his way, something to build upon moving forward. So I was, on the one hand, obviously, you know, surprised that UTEP – ended up being as competitive as it was. Some of it was a little bit misleading, two wins against FCS opponents, a 30-1-6 to victory against ULM, who we talked about already being one of the worst teams in college football. But towards the end of the year, they lost their last four games, but they lost to Louisiana Tech 21-17. to They lost to Charlotte 38-28. They did get blown out by UTSA, but then they lost to North Texas 43, or excuse me, 45-43, and Hardison was out that game. Uh, with, with COVID. So, you know, UTEP, I, I was relatively impressed, especially with that defensive line duo. And then there are some pieces there on offense to make you think, okay, we, we won some games, got a little confidence. We lost close. So maybe in 2021, hey, we can win close. Really, I think there's a, a chance that UTEP could, you know, they've already said, and, and Dana Dammel, uh, who uh, surprisingly to me, the, the coordinator moves he made, a little old for my liking, but, uh, you know, that that's just sort of the way he's, he's done things there at UTEP. But uh, they're on paper, the schedule looking ahead to next year. Conference USA, I think, is absolutely wide open. They do play New Mexico State in the non-conference. They play Bethune-Cookman, an FCS program. Bowl eligibility is not out of the question for UTEP. I'm I'm going to be keeping an eye, especially out of this group. They're one of the teams I'm I'm most excited uh, about looking ahead to 2021. Xavier, what do you think? I mean, uh, you know, Nick seems pretty bullish on UTEP here moving forward. 
Yeah, and I'm right there with him. I, I, bowl eligibility, I, Nick stole my thunder a little bit. I was going to go ahead and say I think this will be the only team to have a winning season or at least a bowl eligible season going into next year. I think when you look at their comp- – you think you, you think there's one more? Okay, all right. Nick, Nick thinks there's one more. Okay, so I, I, I'll let him get to that in a second. But um, when I look at their when I look at their non-conference schedule, that's really what bolsters it for me. I think they can win all three of their non-conference games going into next year. Outside of no, no, I think they can win all three of their non-conference games next year. And I really think that when you do that, it puts you in a position to only have to win three conference games. Well, guess what? They won three conference games last year. They can do it again. And I really think that you know six and six is not an insurmountable part. Uh, place for them to be next year. Nick hit it right on the head. They have some momentum to build on. Scott, you let off with it. They're the only team in this ranking with multiple wins. Heck, I think are they one of they're one of only two teams with one win. So I think you know <laughs> but they're one of only three teams with one win. So they've got something to build on going into next year. I really like where UTEP is and Nick said it again. Conference USA is wide open. This is a conference that does not have any top dogs returning except for maybe one or two, but even like we saw Florida Atlantic kind of fall off the pace last year. We saw UAB struggle at times last year. I think like – UAB lost some good defensive Yeah, players. and, and I think going into this year, UTEP has an opportunity to compete. So I, I really like UTEP to be the only team, like I said, the only team to go bowl eligible this year, although Nick thinks I'm – you know, there's one more left on this list. Now the P5 rares its ugly head here uh, in the bottom ten. <laughs> with Kansas and look, Kansas has been rebuilding for a while. You know, look, they, they beat Texas a while back with Charlie strong for their first time. in you know, a million years to beat Texas and all that stuff. So look, we've seen flashes of, of, uh, talent and, um, a winning attitude at Kansas, you know, a lot like UConn, a basketball school, first a football school, second, but, uh, less miles is still there. The, the rebuild continues they did lose Parchment and Robinson in the transfer portal. I mean, they're not definitely gone, but they're probably gone. And yeah. then uh, Conrad Hawley uh, came in, and he's probably going to battle Jalen Daniels for the starting spot at quarterback. They still have McAvity there as well. So a lot to get figured out still at um, Kansas. And this is – is this Miles' third year? Third year, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's going to have to start turning around if Les wants to uh, make an actual impact here. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I can certainly be verbose and I can get excited about a team like UTEP. And there's one team that we'll talk about in a minute here that I do think uh, has a chance to, to get back and, and decide, you know, the winning side of things and get to ball eligibility. Kansas is not it. Uh, you know, uh, Puka Williams is gone. He was he was the biggest bright spot. He's going to get drafted. He is is a very talented player. It's unfortunate that he had a, a personal situation uh, this year. Decided to opt out after four games. Get back, uh, you know, closer to family and and uh, Kansas. You know, Belton Gardner was banged up. Showed a little bit of promise. They did get a, a you know some some good performances from true freshmen Amari Pisic Hinton and Daniel Hishaw, but the drop off from Puka Williams was huge. And then you mentioned uh, uh, Stephon Robinson Jr. and Andrew Parchment. Both of those guys entered the transfer portal and have moved on to other Power Five programs. Robinson's at Northwestern. Uh, Parchment is at Florida State. Uh, they're, they're at least committed there, and, and I'm not sure if they've signed the paperwork. But uh, you know those guys. 
both showed some potential. Parchment put up 10 production points in 2019. Robinson uh, put up four production points, which for receivers, it's a little bit harder uh, based on how we were calculating those in 2019 than it is uh, a lot of other positions. We've done something to, to help uh, build that up, you know, in, in moving forward. But both of those guys were, you know, spent some time uh, injured and, and you know, also just the ineffectiveness with the quarterback position. They started three guys. Thomas McBitty got hurt in the, the first game. They went to a, a true freshman, Jalen Daniels, who showed some running, running ability, but really, you know, has a, a long way to go as a passer. Miles Kendrick might even be a, a better runner, a little bit more, you know, experienced Gave him a, a shot in the arm late in the year, but just hasn't been able to, to hold on to that job either. Uh, you know, it's always been in the mix the last couple of years, but uh, Kansas is, is just in a really, really tough spot. They were one of the most inexperienced teams in the country coming into 2020. Uh, looked like they had a winnable game against Coastal Carolina to start. And then obviously, you know, ran into a, a buzzsaw. It turned out to be one of the best, you know, top 25 teams in the country and, and a Sunbelt champ. So uh, that didn't work out well. And then they're just at a, a huge, huge talent advantage, disadvantage compared to other teams in the conference. I've seen a little bit of buzz from some, you know, Big 12 folks that, hey, Kansas is is on the rise and, and Texas Tech might be the team. You know, maybe they can jump up and, and get Texas Tech next year and and you know they they played at the end of the season and and Kansas had its at least its closest game lost 16 to 13 but you know I I I don't see it I think Texas Tech uh despite their own transfer issues and we'll get to them in, in a few weeks but I just think the gap between Kansas and and the rest of really the 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 power five is huge I I struggle to see uh, Kansas, you know, they, they, uh, let's, let's pull up the, pull up next year's schedule. They've got an FCS opponent in week one, South Dakota. Yeah. Winnable, but are they, are they going to be a big favorite? Probably not. And then coastal Carolina, again, Duke, another power five program, and then nine conference games. They're going to be an underdog probably in, in at least uh, 11 games next year. And it's going to be, you know, that that uh, week one is no guarantee. I just, Kansas is, is it's rough. It is, it is rough right now. And, and, you know, I've been proven wrong. There's, there's maybe a little bit of a, a bright spot in true freshman corner, Karan Prunty. You know, maybe Kenny Logan is a sophomore. That that secondary did some decent things. Kyron Johnson, senior linebacker, assuming he takes advantage of that extra year of eligibility, did have seven production points last year. Is a, a player that uh, is a 92 in our, uh, you know, overall player ratings. The defense, maybe it takes a little bit of a step forward, but offense, man, you know, uh, maybe somebody jumps up and, and takes that quarterback role. Maybe Daniels improves as a sophomore. Maybe one of those freshman running backs uh, or, or a freshman receiver like Luke Grimm steps up and, and takes their game to the next level. Maybe an influx of talent from somewhere, but they're not even really active in the transfer portal right now. So it's got to be development in the program. It's got to be on the recruiting trail. And it could happen quicker than I expect, but 
I have my my expectations for Kansas in 2021 are even lower than they were coming into to 2020, and they were about as low as it gets for a P5 program at that point. Man, I mean, uh, t- tough words. I'm a positive uh, guy. <laughs> yeah, and Nick Nick is a very positive guy. So to to hear him uh, talk like that about Kansas. Uh, I mean, it makes me laugh, but but Xavier, what what do you think about Kansas moving forward in 2021? Yeah, I think uh, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid that does a lot at the end of the tunnel. You know, I, I'm looking at the recruiting right now, and, and you guys wouldn't believe this if I was the one, if I had a tattooed on my arm. But currently, Kansas has a better recruiting class than Iowa State. They're currently ranked sixth in the top. Miles has got a lot of pull. Yeah. But they have been as dead. I was saying back a dozen all Big Twelve. <laughs> they have they, they, they have a better recruiting class than TCU, Iowa State, Kansas State, and Texas Tech. They currently rank ranked sixth in the conference in recruiting. I think that the Les Miles Mojo is starting to work on the recruiting trail. You say that he's a great recruiter, but he's finished dead last in the conference the last two years. I think he's starting to work some type of magic on the recruiting trail, getting a lot of kids from the southeast. Uh, and, and I think that this is going to help and bode well for them in the future. Am I saying Kansas is going to win four games this year? No. But to what Nick was saying about people thinking that Texas Tech might be the team that bottoms out, first off, Texas Tech, we saw last year outside of their offense was nothing non-existent. So maybe they are. But I think Kansas, at least on the recruiting trail, is starting to show life. And that is where you build, you know, in three years, Kansas has a team that makes a bowl game. You know, And, and so I think that that's where it comes from. And I think that's where the excitement for Kansas football is coming from. Once again, like I said, Les Miles is starting to work his mojo on the recruiting trail. When looking at their schedule and looking at the way that they performed last year, do I think that they'll all of a sudden come out of the basement and be a team to compete? No. no. I'm not going to go on that much of a limb. But I do think the light is there at the end of the tunnel. It's just two years off, not next year. Another bad year for Kansas next year is what's going to happen. And Les Miles will keep his job because it's Les Miles. Now, uh, the team that probably uh, came in with the biggest mess, but maybe the most talent, is Utah State. Uh, finished one and five last year. Uh, the Frank Mail controversy with Utah State President Noel Cockett um, was it, it was very weird. I mean, the team decided to not play their last game because of it. Uh, the there was an internal investigation, which turned out to say that there was nothing done wrong by the president and, and what she said uh, about Frank Mayo, but, but he is gone. And uh, Blake Anderson is coming in after, you know, Mayo and Gary Anderson are gone. There's also some weirdness with Gary Anderson on his way out. Um, but when you're focusing on the hire, look, you know, uh, Blake Anderson comes over from Arkansas state. He had been a great coach there with a good offense. He brings in a couple of transfers, Logan Bonner and Brandon Bowling. Uh, he's got his uh, new OC and Anthony Tucker and a nice uh, DC and Ephraim Banda. It looks like I I'm assuming this is an other team that you're thinking might be bowl eligible here, Nick. Uh, Cause there is a lot of talent on this team and they're not far removed from being very, very good. You're muted. I agree. <laughs> I agree. This is this is the team. And the wheels completely fell off in 2020. And, and you know, part of that was Gary Anderson. He has a history of this sort of uh, behavior, kind of, you know, uh, letting letting things uh, start to fall apart a little bit, walking away in the middle of the year. This time it wasn't his choice. He, he was fired early on. 
but, you know, the, the roster was in disrepair. Uh, a lot of guys entered the transfer portal in the middle of the season, inclu- uh, including some uh, starters, relatively big name guys. They tried to do a quick fix at the quarterback position to replace Jordan Love, went with Jason Shelley, the Utah transfer. Uh, he ends up right after, you know, a little bit after uh, Anderson was fired, ends up getting dismissed from the program. Uh, so, you know, absolutely needed needed a change in leadership. And uh, the end of the year, as you mentioned, was, was definitely weird, not how you want to end it. Uh, but, you know, I, I think this really is a situation where, uh, one, this was an underperforming team in, in 2020. This was a team that we thought should be ranked in the 80s or 90s in, in our preseason rankings coming in. Didn't play like it, obviously. But, uh, you know, this is a team that, that has the talent to be, or, or we thought had the talent to be middle of the pack in the Mountain West, not one of the, the you know very worst teams in college football. Blake Anderson had a, had a lot of success at Arkansas State. Obviously, the last couple of years, uh, the the you know program took a little bit of a step back. This year, they got the big win early on against Kansas State, but then after that, you know there there were some some games that they lost that they probably should have won. Had a had an explosive offense, had a uh, you know couple of solid players on defense, but it just weren't really able to get it done. Part of that, I think, was you know uh, Blake Anderson has dealt with some some really really difficult stuff. Personally, lost his wife to cancer in 2019, uh, has said that, you know, everything around Jonesboro, where they were there in Arkansas, reminded him of her. And and, uh, it was time, part of the reason he pursued this job, it was time for a change of scenery, you know, for him to kind of clear his head, to to be in a different part of the country. And it is a very different part of the country. And he, he seems a little bit, you know, on paper, we think about it, a little bit of a fish out of water. You know, is he a good fit at, at Utah State? But he has some history in, in the Mountain West, coached at New Mexico uh, earlier in his career. So he's he's recruited out West. He's, he's you know, familiar with the, the surroundings there. So it's not a complete, uh, I, I think, departure from, you know, so he, he won't be completely uncomfortable, we'll, we'll say. So, uh, you know, I, I think that Blake Anderson – is going to be able to come in and, and bring some stability to this prog- uh, program that Gary Anderson just really uh, wasn't able to do. You mentioned he's he's brought some guys along with him. Logan Bonner being the big, you know, he, he's a guy who was a starter, multi-year starter at Arkansas State, uh, put up a lot of yards, wasn't able to separate himself from Lane Hatcher as the full-time go-to guy. But now, at least in theory, he'll have that opportunity. Andrew Peasley, who took over after Jordan Shelley, had at least one excellent game, showed some showed some real promise, and then they they ended up going to a freshman uh, running back, Ilian Noah. Uh, you have to think that's a, a good building block. They've got Jordan Nathan at uh, you know very very experienced. He's going to be a super senior. Had you know over thirty starts in his career. Justin McGriff is a big target, had a big game as well against New Mexico. And, you know, offensively, you throw in guys who know Blake Anderson's offense and Logan Bonner. So it should be a little bit of a, you know, sped up process, at least for uh, getting the the new offense in place. Brandon Bowling's going to help that as well. Possession type receiver, slot guy, you know, he, he's going to help with that. They brought Calvin Tyler in, the, the Oregon State transfer running back. 
that's going to be an improvement. You know, they, they did have Devontae Henry Cole, Utah transfer last year, but uh, he was in and out of the lineup a little bit. And, and you have to think maybe Tyler has more upside. And then I, I think the big one, the, the big name uh, they brought in defensively, brought in a few, brought in some, some P5 transfers, linebacker from Texas, Byron Hobbs Bonds, uh, edge rusher from Miami, and Patrick Joyner Jr., but the, the name that I'm most excited about is Justin Rice, who was a All-Mountain West performer at Fresno State. When the Mountain West decided it was going to cancel its season, transferred to Arkansas State, became you know uh, one of the, the nation's leading tackler and uh, was a, an all-Sun Belt type guy, follows Blake Anderson back, back to the Mountain West. He's going to be uh, the quarterback of the defense. He's going to fit in with what should be a, a pretty good linebacker core already with Nick Henniger, who had 11 production points last year. There are some pieces in the secondary. Shaq Bond, uh, multi-year starter, four production points this year. They're, they're expecting to get uh, basically everybody back on defense for the most part. They, they might lose a, a safety, uh, Troy Left. Left good. He, he went into the transfer. Oh yeah, he, he transferred to Texas State. He's the the big guy that they're going to miss. They're going to miss Jalen Warren, uh, the running back who transferred to uh, Oklahoma State. But I absolutely think that based on the coaching change, I think is an improvement. Based on the transfers coming in, who might you know, it's it's difficult to say. Okay, transfers are, are going to take us to the next level immediately. But these are guys who have familiarity with Blake Anderson, with his system on offense, and they're talented enough on defense to come in and be day one starters. So I think Utah State underperformed last year. They're better than this 122 ranking. I do expect they'll be 105, something like that in our, our preseason rankings, maybe even you know back into the double digits since there should be at least on paper an upgrade at the quarterback position. But I think Utah State has the potential, absolutely, to get back to – a bowl game as early as 2021. I, I certainly think that they've got the talent. I think the, the coaching uh, changes a, a move in the right direction. The non-conference schedule is tough with Washington State and BYU, but winnable games against FCS North Dakota, not North Dakota State, North Dakota and uh, New Mexico State. Those are winnable games. No, you know, maybe the Boise State game is an automatic loss in Mountain West play, but everything else is winnable even San Jose State. So uh, I think Utah State is definitely going to be in the mix, going to have a chance at a 500 uh, record and, and uh, certainly, certainly could uh, get themselves bowl eligible in Blake Anderson's first season. Xavier, are you, are you buying in? What do you think? Utah State. I mean, Nick makes a compelling argument. I won't lie. Nick makes a very, very compelling argument. You know, one of the things, like I said, we've been doing, I've been talking a lot about recruiting. One of the really big reasons why I had Utah State as not getting to 500 was because there has been very little recruiting outside of their, um, outside of the transfers. To give you a number, two, two kids signed a letter of intent to Utah State last year. Just two. I, I don't know if that's going to be, you know, if that's, indicative of what's going on over there. There's no sanction. So I, I was really confused. I had to check that like three or four times while Nick was talking to make sure that was correct. So that was one of the big reasons why I was like, I don't know about Utah State. But Nick makes a very compelling argument. Blake Anderson is bringing a lot of carryover from that explosive offense at Arkansas State. We have to remember that Arkansas State team was explosive in the Sun Belt. And I think he can carry that over. And once again, this Utah State team was 7-6 and six in 2019. Yes, they had a rough 2020, but in 2019, this team was a competitive ball club that got to a bowl game. And 
I believe lost their bowl game, but still got to a bowl game. So you know what? I'm going to take back what I said. They will get to a bowl game next year. They will be bowl eligible. They'll be six and six or better uh, due to the fact that I do believe that Logan Bonner is a guy who can come right in day one, not only be a starter, but succeed in that conference. And I like the other pieces that they brought in. I really like Patrick Joyner. I love uh, Calvin Tyler, uh, which Nick hit on uh, the running back from Oregon State. I think these are guys who can hit the ground running and can make an immediate impact in this conference. Uh, and so, like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with Nick on this one. I think Utah State makes a, a bowl game. Uh, in 2021. All right. The last team we have to talk about here was the 0-6 UNLV uh, runner Rebs. Uh, they're still looking for a quarterback. Justin Rogers transferred there from TCU. There's some rumors about Tate Martell. Uh, lots of names in the portal right now for them, too. So uh, UNLV has got to get uh, – they, they've got to get some stuff figured out here now. They do. And, and UNLV was a bit of a disappointment. Marcus Arroyo, his first season as head coach, coming over from Oregon as offensive coordinator. And, and I'm going to beat Xavier to the punch here. Uh, I know UNLV can recruit. They recruited oh, yeah. last year, and yeah. they are one of the – their their class. Last I checked this uh, two days ago when I was I was building out uh, our, our visuals that, that we're referring to in a lot of the – uh, you know, ratings and, and rankings and whatnot. And UNLV had the 68th ranked recruiting class at that point. They were ninth in the group of five conferences. They were third in the Mountain West. And mm -hmm. a lot of players are coming back. And, and quarterback is a situation where, as you mentioned, Scott, they, they will have some turnover. Max Gilliam has stated that he won't be back in 2021. Justin Rogers hasn't been able to stay healthy. So that's a bit of an issue. But you know, Doug Brumfeld got some uh, got some playing time last year. He also had a, a little bit of an injury issue. But you know, might he be able to, to take that job and and run with it? Not sure. I would love to see Tate Martell, who, who earlier okay. today entered the transfer portal. Local local guy there. The 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 changeover to the uh, staff with Arroyo is is. Uh, makes it maybe slightly less likely than had it been the previous staff uh, under uh, uh, Sanchez, who was who was uh, also at Bishop Gorman, where I believe that's where Tate Martell played his, his high school ball. So uh, maybe that you know makes it a little less uh, unlikely. But I did see uh, you know someone associated the good, the good folks at Two Four Seven Sports put in a, a crystal ball to. Uh, Tate Martell to UNLV almost immediately after he announced that announcement or, you know, made his announcement that he was transferring. So we'll see. He's got elite, elite speed. I don't want to talk too much about him, uh, you know, in, until it is final. If it is final, maybe we'll talk about him uh, in coming weeks if he decides to go somewhere else. But, you know, would would be fun, would at least be interesting. They've got Charles Williams uh, at running back who is a, a, I've said, you know, building blocks for uh, multiple you know, teams before, and most of them have been running backs, but Charles Williams is the best of the bunch, and this, you know, UNLV running back group is the best of the bunch. They rank 54th in our, our uh, running back rankings. That's the best of, of any unit across all 10 teams that we've discussed today. There are very few that are even in double digits, uh, and, and most of them are at running back, but the, the next closest unit is that Bowling Green uh, running back unit I mentioned was 80th. We have two, or no, just one on offense. Kansas's secondary ranks 88th. So you can see the the actual difference in, in one unit that is uh, really something.
that you can build upon. And I think that's Charles Williams at, at uh, UNLV. He's a good player. He might, you know, eventually uh, play on Sundays. I, I you know, hope, hope he'll have an opportunity to do that because he's been very productive there at UNLV. They have lost a lot of guys to the transfer portal. One of their top performing uh, receivers, Tyke Williams, or excuse me, Tyke Collins, uh, just earlier today answered uh, the transfer portal. He ranked second on the team with two, uh, or excuse me, tied for the team lead with two touchdown catches. They do have a true freshman, Kyle Williams, who emerged as their you know best receiver, most productive receiver this year. But you know, uh, then on the other hand, they lost uh, who might be you know one of the better uh, G five offensive linemen in the country, Justice uh, Alosun, who's getting a lot of P five attention after he's entered the transfer portal. So some guys coming in, some guys coming out. They've had some local products uh, perform already. Adam Plant Jr. as a, a pass rusher, defensive lineman, was you know put had seven tackles for loss in his first year transferring back to uh, UNLV after being at TCU. So, you know, a guy like that uh, you can build upon. You mentioned Rodgers. Hopefully he'll be able to get healthy. If so, that gives him a big boost in talent at the the quarterback position. But, you know, they're going to be relying on on uh, a lot of incoming freshmen. And going 0-6 last year, doing, uh, you know, making a, a bit of a real surprising move to start Max Gilliam and, and then having uh, other guys that, that played last year. Kenny Noblad was the starting quarterback, returning quarterback, uh, ends up, you know, losing the job, falling way down the depth chart and, and eventually transferring. Kind of a weird situation. Randall Grimes, USC transfer, was suspended before the season, is, is now in the transfer portal. Makai Stevenson, uh, somebody who, who recently entered the transfer portal, was returning very, very experienced receiver. So what's going on behind the the – the you know scenes, obviously a change in coaching staff. There are uh, things that that will need to be worked out. Sometimes personalities just don't match, and, and maybe that's the situation with Arroyo. Maybe all the you know high three star level guys that he's bringing in as high school recruits will help to uh, you know be his kind of guys and and uh, buy in maybe more than some of these others. And and you know maybe they'll pick up another player or two in the transfer portal. They did get uh, a, a big target from Indiana, Jordan Jakes, transferred from uh, the Hoosiers, 6'5", 210, uh, and, and, you know, a former uh, high three-star type player. So maybe they get a couple of more guys like that. Maybe some of these, you know, they really hit on uh, some of these uh, talented incoming freshmen and, and guys will be redshirt freshmen next year. And, you know, uh, maybe things will start to click and, and, you know, Charles Williams can help take him to the next level. And, and who knows, maybe maybe Tate Martell comes in and, and saves the day. But it might take a little while. I think UNLV is on the right path with Arroyo. Bringing more talent, raising the talent level is, is you know, job number one. And, and he's doing that. Now he got to win games. So didn't get, a, didn't get off the schneid last year as a first-time head coach. It's you know um, uh, imperative that he does uh, as soon as possible to give that young team uh, a bit of a boost early on, and, and they've got a tough non-conference schedule. They play Arizona State on the road. They do host Iowa State, but Iowa State is is probably a lock to be a top ten preseason team, and then they play UTSA, who went to a bowl game this year. All of that after an FCS opener against one of the better FCS programs in the country in Eastern Washington. So there are no guaranteed victories on the schedule for UNLV, but 
I think at least in the long term, there's a lot of reason to be optimistic. We're just going to have to see if, if they can you know, get over that hump early on, get a win against a tough FCS opponent, and then maybe parlay that uh, you know, into uh, some victories over winnable uh, rivals in, in the Mountain West. Finish with you, or they, they play Utah State, they play our tribal Nevada, they play New Mexico. Those are winnable games. You just got to get it done, get in the win column, and, uh, you know, we'll see. I, I don't have real high hopes for UNLV. I think they're probably going to stay in this range in our preseason rankings, depending on how transfers uh, play out. But, um, you know, hope for the future, but expectations pretty low in 2021. UNLV, Xavier, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think Nick hit it right on the head. So I just, I'm just going to say it right now. I hope Tate Martell goes there. It'll be fun to see him play football again. And UNLV for me reminds me a lot of San Jose State two years ago. Now, this was a ball club at San Jose State two years ago, 1 and 11. Like Nick said, a similar schedule that year. San Jose State had to play Washington State and Oregon that year. You know, did that mean that, you know, and they, and they finished 1 and 11? And we looked at San Jose State as, as a bottom dweller two years ago. This is a team that this past year went seven and one. Now, granted, they were able to skip out on games versus Fresno State and uh, Boise State due to COVID. But this is a team that still would have, at the very worst, would have finished seven and three. I think UNLV is on a on a similar kind of trajectory, you know, that San Jose San Jose State was. I think you can see them making a leap in a couple of years, and that's that's how I feel about this. Uh, I, I think that UNLV is a team that has the right coach. And I think, you know, that's why he was picked so high in our first-year head coach's draft last year. He's, I think he's the guy that is going to take them back to being a team that can be a bowl-eligible team year in and year out. I think Tate Martell going there would speed that process up. But even if he doesn't, I think it's more than capable for them in two years to be a team that's 6-6 six and six again or in a bowl game. All right. Well, that is going to wrap it up for us today. Uh, we will be back. Remember, we're doing two shows a week, so we're going to be back on Tuesday with news or Wednesday with news, Thursday with uh, the next 10 teams. Vandy's going to be in there. We're going to have, uh, obviously, better teams moving forward every week. But um, that is going to wrap it up for us this week. Remember, you can find us all on the Twitter machine, at Bogman Sports for me, at CFP Winning Edge for Nick, and at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E for Xavier. And we'll see you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping our show ad-free and for funding our wide range of college football analytics projects. Thanks also to Blake Austin for our theme music. To learn more about CFB Winning Edge, visit patreon.com slash CFB Winning Edge or follow us on Twitter at CFB Winning Edge.